You're listening to a Thames Estuary Partnership podcast celebrating London's famous tidal river. We hope you enjoy it. Hello and welcome back to Talk of the Thames. I'm your host, Chloe Russell. And a big welcome back to our second part of Life Under the Thames. It's great to have you back. In the first part of this episode, we are at the Estuary Edge site in Battersea Reach, and this episode is no different. Whilst we were on the site, we spoke more in depth with fisheries expert Steve Kogler about his skills and experiences in the field. Steve has been in the field for decades, and as you can imagine, has seen a lot of exciting research take place, not to mention leading it. I hope you enjoy listening to the second part of Life Under the Thames. Let's go straight in. I've spent, uh, let's see, nigh on 40 years, close on 40 years now, uh, messing around in both fresh waters and for the last 30 odd years, certainly, specifically in estuaries and salt marshes and such places, yes. So, yes, I've learnt my stuff. There's very few people who've actually studied these areas very much. There's only about 20 of us across Western Europe who have really studied intertidal fish populations, which is a bit of a shame because it's probably some of the most um, productive aquatic ecosystems we have. What sparked your interest in marine and freshwater fisheries? How did you develop a career in this field? That's an interesting question. So, right, I grew up with an uncle who was a vet at Chester Zoo uh, and really fancied being a vet until one day he pointed out to me I had, a, I had a phobia about small dogs. And it turned out I'd watched my sister being mauled when I was three and she was one. Oh. And it just stuck in my head. I didn't know. So small dogs made me freeze at the time. Anyway, the more I thought about it, I thought, well, really make fish are really me, what I really want to do. So I ended up going to Liverpool University, my home university, to do uh, zoology with freshwater fisheries. But at the choice for the honours year, um, the zoology, the freshwater fishes option was folding. I wouldn't run that year. So because I'd done all the right units, I went to the Isle of Man and did marine biology for the year. Uh, and then spent some time trying to argue my way into the water industry to be a freshwater fisheries officer, which I was for nine years out of North London. And then in 85, got a promotion down to the banks of the Thames and spent part of my career to that point developing a standardised uh, sampling methodology with electrofishing in rivers for uh, staff across what was then Thames Water Authority. So with my sampling background on, I sort of looked over the wall into the tideway and said, well, why aren't we sampling this? and found that the only biologists sampling it at all were looking at the fish that were sucked onto power station cooling screens. And they're only looking at it in terms of how, what it showed of the water quality improvements in the Thames. Nobody was actually interested in the ecology of the river. So in the late 80s, with a series of uh, King's College MSc students, we started working out how to sample the estuary methodically. And what we worked out is that if you went to um, um, a gravel beach, like say the one at the Royal Naval College at Greenwich, and you go down at slack water, low tide, the water isn't actually moving anywhere for maybe half an hour. So we could stand there and use this same net, this curtain of netting I mentioned, in a standardised method, uh, and then do a little bit of beam trawling and some kick sampling. We always tried to do it, use this suite of methods because a single method would only show you part of the picture. So we developed this multi-method technique. And I kept that going for Thames year, Thames, 10 years sorry, inside what was still Thames Water Authority pre-privatisation. Um, uh, and then in the 90s, through the National Rivers Authority, 
uh, with senior managers saying in Bristol saying stop it it's not what fishers office are paid to do but our local management was saying yes but we can see you using the data in water quality flood risk management etc and planning in particular um, and suddenly in 2001 somebody doing an external study uh, for what was to become the water framework directive phoned me from a conference in, Port in Portugal and said, you don't know me, but I've heard you're doing something on estuaries. Could you fax me something? And I later he phoned me back and said, uh, are you sitting down? And I said, I beg your pardon. He said, I have to tell you, I've got 30 scientists here who've all been brought to see how we should sample fish in estuaries. And it seems like you're already doing it on the Thames. Therefore, you are European best practice. Wow. And you go from being a bit of a... Um, an internal joke of a bit of a pariah to suddenly a national expert, just like that. And it's literally because we were the only people in Western Europe who were sampling like that. Um, we quickly became international leads throughout the Atlantic face of uh, Europe for Water Framework Directive because there were so few people doing it. And we slowly trained all the agency staff in how to do this. I was using the data in the planning uh, field, particularly with things like what became Estuary Edges, and advising local area staff and I also started to sample fish in salt marshes and found again that very few people have ever done that. So I left the Environment Agency in 2011, uh, set myself up as a consultant, and I'm also chair of my uh, specialist section of our institute, Institute of Fisheries Management, looking at marine estuarine fisheries. So I've spent the last 10 years continuing in the science field and increasingly working with citizen science groups to extend that knowledge and train new people in this field. So uh, although I'm now semi-retired at the age of 69, I carry on because I'm interested. Gosh, you're 69, you could have fooled me. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Gosh, wow, what a career. Um, I would, well, so from that story alone, I'd say the highlight or a highlight was having that conversation was being like we're on the other phone of 30 other scientists that that was a shock um, that was no, a no shock, right? because i had assumed that other people would be doing this sort of thing yeah um and what the uh caller whose uh, name is professor mike elliott from the university of hull later pointed out to me he said now what you've done steve is you understand how the tide flows across the, the, the estuary and you've worked out an efficient way of sampling the fish in a standardised way. So that's the difference. Most people haven't gone down that route and understood the whole process. So what, what I realised is that I was bringing my freshwater fisheries background and my marine biology degree together in a way which I'd never intended to, but happened. And I still talk about this because very few um, fishery scientists work in estuaries. They understand freshwater fisheries, they understand the marine, it's this thing in the middle. Both of them look at it and say, it goes up and down and in and out, it changes rapidly. I don't want to touch it. Right. So we're just one of the few groups of people who's carried on working on this. And yet it's some of the most productive areas for fish, we yeah. just haven't looked at it. So there's a lot of um, senior scientists in government bodies who don't appreciate, for example, that a salt marsh is the best possible nursery ground for a sea bass. Because wow. they've never made that connection. Isn't that wild? So, so my, my passion is about educating others in this, basically. Mm, mm, mm. Can you tell us more about what other highlights you've had along your career? Highlights? Um, um, several, really, but they, they sort of, sorry, they come to... Um, sorry. They come to... Um, uh, take a long time to come to this. Um, for many years with, I just mentioned about salt marshes and estuaries, for many years these artificial habitats, we call them managed realignments, have been designed by engineers 
who simply said, well, we'll create this site and the fish and birds will come. Uh, even 15 years ago, because the sampling myself and a few others were doing, we were starting to show, no, hang on, you've got to consider fish ecology in your design process. They didn't want to know. It's very satisfying to me that now they are listening. So quite late in my career, I'm getting heavily involved in the design of new sites to make them more fish-friendly. So that's a highlight, but it's taken a long time coming. Uh, another one which I'd, I'd mention, uh, something we haven't talked about before, is of all things the sturgeon. Um, I lead a group in my institute, which is part of something called the UK Sturgeon Alliance, with ZSL, um, Blue Marine Foundation and some other bodies, looking at can we possibly restore sturgeon to the UK? Now, I've got a historical database I've helped develop over 20 years now with 5,000-plus records. And one of the highlights of my career has been fairly recently when UK government have turned around effectively and said, OK, we're here what you're saying. It was a native species. Now where do we go? Wow. Because until recently it's been viewed as a vagrant that's only occasionally here. We've now done enough research through historical data and work very, very closely with French and German colleagues who are actually doing restoration at the moment. To be able to demonstrate, no, this is probably a pan-European population that used all our rivers and all our estuaries, and I've got about 100 records from the history of the Thames as well. So again, that's coming to a climax now after 15 years of working on it. So yes, another highlight of my career, yeah. certainly. Gosh, how about the challenges? What challenges have you faced along the way? Um, I'd say the challenges, particularly in my career when I was in the environment agency, were lack of funding uh, and lack of appreciation of the value of what we were doing. Um, seen, this isn't being unkind, it was seen as a project for Water Framework Directive, when in fact it's much more than that and it's got much more longer term than that. Um, uh, and, and, and never, never ever having enough time and staff to do everything you wanted to do. But you learn to prioritise and, and do what you can and where you can. But it is satisfying to see some of those things coming to fruition now, certainly, yes. Absolutely. So you have extensive experience in working with regulatory agencies and government mm -hmm. bodies and advisory groups. How do you effectively navigate the complexities of collaborating with different stakeholders to achieve all these goals? The first thing to say is extremely difficult, and that's, that's not meant to be glib. Um, and it can sometimes take a lifetime's experience of learning who those regulators are and how to deal with them and how to get them to collaborate. Um, for, one, for one very good reason, I would strongly support what Tepper's always done in this field. And the reason for that is it's, it's a neutral meeting ground where you can gain consensus between regulators who possibly don't understand each other. Um, and one of the big things here on estuaries is that freshwater and terrestrial regulators are progressively handing over to marine regulators as you move downstream. They both have completely different understandings and management methods, and yet they don't understand that in ecological terms, we're all trying to manage a continuity from fresh water through the estuary to the sea. Uh, so TEP, in my view, in the 30 years or so of its history, has been vital in helping bring some of these bodies together. And even today, you will talk to scientists and regulators who say, well, I'm a marine, I'm a freshwater, and the two never meet. Mm. Ask a sea bass or a salmon for that matter. <laughs> they want to move through that area uh, in continuity, and yet the regulations have not necessarily allowed that. I'd also say that the, the whole NGO sector is becoming ever more important because government can't do all the work it, we would want it to do. 
Um, issues like Water Framework Directive, incumbent within that is stakeholder engagement. So you have to engage the NGOs. Um, and through things like citizen science programs, it's entirely possible that the NGO sector cannot at all replace the work of regulators, but it can complement it very effectively. And that's very much a growth theme. Mm. That's a great answer, thank you. So in your opinion, what are the key environmental threats facing fish populations in the Thames estuary and what conservation measures are being taken to address them? Well, the biggest challenge is still water quality. Uh, I remember in my career, I'd only just been on the Thames, uh, let's see, this is 1986, when we had what we now think was Western Europe's largest ever fish mortality. And that was simply because we cleaned up the Thames and it had lots of life left, life returning to it, but nobody dealt with the combined sewers. So you only needed the wrong pattern of rainfall after a long dry period, and we suddenly had a river that was anoxic in the summer of 86. Uh, with dead fish floating everywhere, with members of the House of Commons saying, hang on, I thought you'd cleaned this up. What on earth are all those dead fish doing? Now, that became the genesis of what is now coming out of the Tideway Tunnel. But as I was saying to somebody else this morning, um, the problem here is not just that we built these combined sewers in the Victorian era everywhere, but that climate change is shifting the rainfall patterns. So we're getting more and more of these short, sharp discharges after a long, dry period. Now, here we have the uh, Tideway Tunnel in, in construction at the moment, but one could argue that you need something like that in every town or city that was heavily developed in the Victorian era. And the government are starting to talk about these sort of approaches, storm tanks and the like. Uh, so water quality has always been an implicit threat in the tidal towns. If we get, or as and when the Tideway Tunnel comes on stream, one of the things I've long predicted is that we might get one or two more sensitive fish species back. There's one out there called the Twait Shad, which is a, basically a freshwater-going version of the herring. Um, it used to be a huge commercial fish on the Thames, with them being taken in large numbers at sites like Greenwich. It's back in the outer edges of the estuary in small numbers because a population is recovered in the Schelt in Belgium, but they can move across from Belgium to here easily. So we may well see a recovery of that species in the Thames when the Tideway Tunnel is in, uh, is in, is in full operation. <laughs> so water quality remains the biggest threat. But there are others. Um, over the years, we have developed a, a policy in the agency and elsewhere to resist encroachment or further pressuring the river by building in it. And people don't realise it's the aggregate impact of that which is the main threat. Uh, little fish use something called selective tidal stream transport to move, which means they pick a flooding tide to move upstream, and during the ebb they sit on the margins of the side. But if you keep making it narrower, you're making that more and more difficult, as, re as well as increasing the tidal range, the scour, etc. So it has other disbenefits, but we've been doing that for 2,000 years. It's only in the last 20 years we've learned to resist that sort of process and indeed build things like estuary edges as a positive return. Um, but encroachment is still a pressure uh, on the system, definitely. I feel like that's a really good segue, actually. My next question was, how do fish populations in the Thames estuary contribute to the overall health and ecological balance of the estuarine ecosystem? Hmm, really good uh, question. The first thing to say is that a lot of the small fish species are a major food source for some of the birds that you see. Right, uh, sure. Things like the common goby is a prime thing, prime species being eaten by a lot of the birds. Um, uh, the, uh, in the lower estuary, 
people don't realise it, but some of the fish taken from the lower Thames estuary, like Dover Cell, which go into the, uh, the fishmonger's uh, slab, um, a lot of them were born in the lower Thames estuary, major Dover Cell nursery in the lower estuary. Um, so there are lots of links between various parts of the ecology of the Thames. Um, and certainly if you had no fish, for example, you'd have very few birds mm, mm. associated with the system. Yeah. Mm, that makes so much sense. Are there any notable changes or trends that you've observed in fish populations or the estuary environment over the course of your career? Mm. Um, a slow but steady improvement. Now, what I mean by that is that people talk about this headline figure of 125 species of fish. That is nothing more than the historical list. Uh, what has happened over my career is we've seen um, population size is getting big. The number of juvenile bass, for example. Now, that is probably climate change. There are warm water species. Uh, we find them throughout the estuary now, but they're making good use of the habitat. Um, but we now know, for example, at least seven species of fish actually spawn in the estuary. Now, that's a key ecological indicator of health of the system. Uh, but that's taken 20 years to work out that that is going on. Um, some estuaries are populated by nothing more than what has washed out of the fresh water or what has come in from the sea. But we have at least seven species spawning in the estuary, which is a, a good ecological indicator. Yeah, um, absolutely. How... So this is an interesting one, actually. So no, before I move on to the next question, are there any particular fish species or habitats in the Thames estuary that are special concern or going the other way, conservation of interest? Hmm. Well, that's, that's, uh, there's several. Uh, people would know about the salmon. Um, but uh, although uh, Thames Water Authority, uh, led on into the Environment Agency, tried to do salmon restoration, that's now been set aside because it was never that successful. Uh, the river, as the rest has also got very warm, um, and the water quality problems were never quite sorted out well enough. Um, but another species I'd recommend people look at in terms of conservation is something called the smelt. Um, the smelt was a, f a huge commercial fishery 250 years ago. It's about as sensitive to water quality as the salmon is. Uh, it runs up to ones with the spawn. Uh, its eggs are attached to the seabed for a few weeks. And then, intriguingly, the fry just wash down on the net tidal excess going out to, to, towards the sea and don't hatch till it gets to somewhere like Millwall and then they start trying to swim back up again. Now, the fact that a very tiny animal of a very sensitive species can do that every year is a major environmental uh, benefit. Uh, and I was responsible for getting the smelt into the fisheries legislation because it, it didn't used to be in there until the Marine and Coastal Access Act, Marine and Coastal Access Act of uh, 2009. Um, but also, it had no conservation status. So when we originally started looking at marine conservation zones, the smelt became one of those flagship species that you could look at to say, well, if it's not covered in some other way, if we've got a spawning population of smelt, maybe it should be an MCZ. Yeah. Now, personally, I actually strongly supported the idea of an MCZ in the Thames, up at Wandsworth. It never happened, possibly for political reasons, but the species is still there. Uh, the conservation status is still there. <laughs> Uh, and very recently, legislation has changed so that, uh, or is changing, so that you could designate um, a piece of river or estuary uh, as an SSSI if you had species like smelt. So there's still a possibility we could get some protection built around smelt. 
it's not the only species of environmental concern, but it's, it's a key one. Um, and sadly, with climate change, it's also on the edge because it's a cold water species and the lower Thames estuaries are getting really quite warm. I feel like you're a bank full of knowledge. <laughs> so how do you stay updated on the latest research and advancements in fisheries science and management? Is there, is there any particular resources or networks you heavily rely on? Uh, my own institute is a, is a good way of meeting fellow fishery scientists. Uh, I attend a lot of conferences, uh, do a lot of reading, but you can never keep totally up to date. Um, and uh, I must say these days I tend to concentrate more on the salt marshes and the, the estuary edges and the um, sturgeon stuff I'm doing. I'm not too much on the general uh, health of fish ecology and estuaries, because it's such a big subject. But I try and keep up to date where I can. And as a seasoned professional in the field, what advice would you give to individuals who aspire to pursue a career in marine freshwater fisheries or environmental consultancy? Mm, another good question. Um, certainly get in touch with people in the field. I know it sounds a bit glib, but... Yeah, through my own institute, the Institute of Fisheries Management, we help put people in touch with people, That's basically. Uh, but so do others. Um, uh, in my past, I've done a lot of uh, lectures to MSC groups in London. Uh, there's all sorts of out outreach mechanisms. Um, but yes, find somebody, even if they're not in the field, they'll, they'll find somebody for you who is in, the, in that particular field. Um, it is a fairly rarefied field. Uh, there isn't an awful lot of money in it. There aren't an awful lot of, of jobs in it. Um, but uh, it's a fascinating area of science. Uh, and there can be roles developed within it. And even if you can't get a paid role, the citizen science can be a really great way of getting involved in it. Some of the best citizen scientists I've worked with are, uh, are passionate in their own work field, but they want to do something completely different and get really passionate on, say, helping do a fish survey somewhere. And in some instances, it can be a way into that field. Uh, I've worked with them. When we're doing citizen science operations, I often say, all right, who have we got here as a group today? Maybe it's 12 individuals you're with. Two or three will be retired people who are bird watchers. You just want to do something else. Always, always will be a couple of, say, MSc students or apprentices who'd really like to get into something like this. They've got no field experience. They just want to know who they can talk to. So approach somebody and find somebody to talk to. But uh, if we can help in any way, we're very happy to. And lastly, to wrap up, we like to ask our guests if they have a take-home message for our listeners. Do you have any take-home messages for our listeners today? Yeah, get involved. Nice. Get, out, yeah. get out there and meet somebody and do something. Yeah. Um, don't sit on your backside and watch others doing it. Um, the future's all about collaboration, so get yourself involved, basically. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, Steve. My pleasure, my pleasure. Welcome back and thank you for listening to this episode. And join us next time for more exciting episodes about all things River Thames. This episode has been brought to you by me, Chloe Russell, on behalf of the Thames Estuary Partnership. And we most look forward to welcoming you next time. Bye for now.